Monsieur So British podcast written and read by me, Ian Moore. Comedian, author, father, husband, goat wrangler, rural France, bed and breakfast owner, reluctant zoo manager, rheumatoid arthritis sufferer, bon viveur and all around good earth. I'm still trying to nail down exactly what this podcast is about, a bit of all the above I suppose. Anyway, I hope you like it and please share it if you do. Here we go, Monsieur So British, episode 7, Magic Wood. Kipper turned his big brown eyes towards me. At seven months old and still very much a puppy, he knows only how to express either happiness and love. But there was something else there this time. Confusion. He was wearing one of those upside-down lampshades that dogs are forced to wear for their own good sometimes. But his puppy suppleness and tenacity meant that he'd managed to bypass the undignified contraption and gone for a nose-about down under, a bit of necessary testicle husbandry, long overdue. That's when he turned towards me in dog bafflement. They were there last time I looked, he seemed to be saying. Where have they gone? Ah, poor Kipper. Time moves on, my friend. It's the circle of life. Or not, in your case. I defy things like this not to put you in a reflective mood. I've been off the drugs for three weeks now, and beginning to realise that apart from the side effects, they had clearly been making a difference, not only to my levels of pain, but my overall tiredness. As a result, I now felt old and useless, cranky and decrepit, and the next specialist appointment was still another month away. There was still a spark of life there. I still had the energy to react like a pissed-off rattlesnake should the situation demand, the latest being told that what's good for chronic inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis is no refined sugar and to love everyone. It felt like the slogan on a T-shirt that some hippie nutritionist would wear while on holiday, a catch-all message to hide the unhappiness of their own shallow existence. I gobbled up a load of sugar cubes, set my personality warmth to tepid, and decided that wallowing wouldn't do. There were things to be done, after all. It's coming up to our first anniversary as a bed and breakfast. It's been a far busier year than expected, too, with high points and low, though far more good than bad. What started out as a post-Brexit safety net, and hopefully something that would replace a lot of my travelling, it's been an unheralded success. It's not always easy, partly because of me, but on the whole it's worked out in ways that I didn't even expect. We've lived here for nearly 15 years, and although we sell the place to guests as a rural idyll and a calm, relaxing backwater, we've rarely seen that side of it ourselves. But it took one simple change to do so. Sunbeds. Up until this summer, I hadn't been in the swimming pool much, or even sat by it. My pool duties are treating the water twice a week, fishing the odd struggling child out of its depths, and being on permanent sentry duty if an insect has the temerity to land on its pristine surface. It's a full-time job, which has meant that I rarely actually swim in the thing, just stand there, tetchily swishing an insect net about. As my friend Paul Tonkinson once said, quite rightly, I was ruining my own paradise. This year, for necessary operational reasons, we had to create a more welcoming mise-en-scene, if you will. Half a dozen sun loungers, a couple of drinks tables, wide parasols, all for the guests, you understand. But the effect on us was immediate. For the first time in 15 years, we were drawn in ourselves. It all looked so inviting, and rather than stand by the pool, ready to pounce on one of the many, many flying buzzing things that the French countryside has to offer, I took a seat instead. Then I lay on a bed. Then I put down my butterfly net and picked up a book. 
Suddenly I was relaxing in my own garden, and I'd never managed that before, which not only sounds ridiculous, but is ridiculous. Now that the season is over, and I must put the sunbeds and parasols away, it's with a sense of loss rather than my usual pathological need to tidy up. The boys have put their cricket stumps away too, after a summer spent trying to recreate their new favourite sport and trying to persuade their French friends that cricket is the future. Arguing absurdly over whether something was a no-ball or bowled with a bent arm, or whether it had pitched outside leg and therefore couldn't possibly be out LBW. It's a surreal thing seeing cricket enjoyed with such fine detail in rural France, even more so when you realise their pitch borders the paddock. Where's the ball gone? I don't know. I think it's behind that goat. Now, it's more autumnal pursuits, and with Samuel away in England and Morris away at school, Terence has turned his attentions to a new hobby, close magic. Now, I dislike close magic. Maybe it's the controlling instinct in me, the need to know how everything in front of me works. But close magic freaks me the hell out. I leave the room, if possible, and have even asked magicians on the comedy circuit to stay well away from me rather than practice their sorcery in my presence. So when Terence starts badgering me every five minutes to pick a card, any card... It's like a form of torture. I can't see how he does the things he does. But after every trick, I'm literally screaming inside my head, running around like a loon shouting, Leave me alone, you freak! I've told him that he'd have been burnt as a witch in more enlightened times, but it doesn't put him off, and he'll just smile at me like some devil child. Pick a card, any card, he asked for about the fifth time in ten minutes. And I remembered what it was I disliked so much about Paul Daniels. It was his utter smug certainty. My shoulders slumped, and reluctantly I put down the cooking stuff I was holding, and indeed picked a card. Don't tell me what it is, the little terror admonished me, as serious as only a ten-year-old can be. I noted the card, the three of diamonds. He shuffled the pack a few times, split it this way and that, all with a theatrical flourish and a knowing smile. Ta-da! he said, producing... The six of clubs. Not my card, I said, trying not to perform fist pump. He went through it all again. Ta-da! He said once more, and this time held up the nine of hearts. This went on all through dinner, to the point where Natalie even quietly suggested I just agreed that whatever card he produced next, I should say was my card. No, and I was quite firm about it. That's how you end up with insufferable children on god-awful talent shows, fed lies by their overindulgent parents. I won't do it. Ta-da! The Queen of Spades. To follow up the no-refined-sugar-love-everyone mantra, Natalie placed an orange in front of me for dessert, while Terence continued to battle with the fickle gods of magic. It looked like the loneliest fruit ever, a solitary orange on a plate with a sharp knife for company, and I tried to keep Kipper's eye off the plated allegory. A disappointed Terence offered to slice the orange open for me, and I didn't have the heart to deny him. Slowly he took a knife to the thing, taking far more care and attention than was really warranted, as he removed the top half. Inside the bloody orange was the bloody three of diamonds. I don't know how he did it. Frankly, I don't want to know how he did it, but it rendered me practically hysterical, while the little sod just laughed. Is this your card, sir? he asked smoothly. I went out and lay on a remaining sunbed, all of a sudden really quite jealous of Kim. (laughs) 
In a world dominated by fake news, it's become ever more important not to take bold statements at face value. Scrutiny is paramount. Fighting accepted norms and platitudes vital. For example, if in response to my almost constant self-pity and whining, I'm met with, well, there's always someone worse off than you, my back, arthritic and herniated as it is, is very quickly going to get up, and I won't accept the lazy platitude with ease. There's always someone worse off than you is a venal, guilt-provoking nonsense, a very British stoicism, a sneering, stiff upper lip response to actually taking a bit of time off for yourself for change. A Victorian epithet whose sole purpose is to stop your pathetic bleating, well, I won't have it. Oh no, my car's failed its MOT, what am I going to do? You know there are kids in Africa who haven't eaten for a week, don't you? What in the sweet merry hell has that got to do with my car issues? I have chronic inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis. You know some people are paralysed from the eyebrows down and can only communicate by frowning or surprise, right? What? All right then, well, we'll call that one a draw. What is a constant niggle as we limp through this veil of tears is not the self-reproach for the fact that others are having a hard time, but the bitter knowledge of the exact opposite, that while I crumble physically like a lump of Wensleydale cheese, there are others out there springing out of bed in the morning with more energy than Tigger and the physical suppleness of an Olympic gymnast. That one of them, specifically in fact, is about 90 years old and still delivering six tonnes of chopped firewood to my house every autumn acts like a taser to whatever limited good humour I have. Monsieur Mayo puts me to shame. He's probably less than five feet tall, solidly built if bow-legged, with wispy grey hair, a permanently cheeky glint in his eye and a smile so infectious even I respond to it. He's probably almost double my age and most definitely not my future. His physical prowess and good humour isn't even my present and if it was ever my past it was a horribly long time ago. He leapt like a sprite onto the top of his tractor trailer, stood on top of the neatly stacked firewood and from his vantage point took a good look at me. It had been a year since I'd seen him last, and in that time he'd definitely got younger, while I've hurtled towards dotage. You look, uh, well, he said, a smile playing on his lips as he lied badly. I didn't look well at all. There I stood, wearing a bandaged elbow tuby grip, a knee support, a black wrist support, a heavy-duty grey girdle, and an embarrassed look on my face. I looked like a man in the midst of the midlife crisis who's lately decided to take up skateboarding but who doesn't have all the equipment. He chuckled to himself. It's axiomatic that in my current physical condition the last thing I should be doing is emptying a tractor of six tonnes of dense firewood and then stacking said pile in the wood store. Natalie said I shouldn't do it. Her parents and the children said I shouldn't do it. My physio laughed when I said I was going to do it and then looked scared that the result would mean that she'd never actually get rid of me. But when the guy delivering the wood is 90 years old and smaller than Kylie Minogue, that, my friends, represents a challenge. I had to keep my end up here, as it were. Besides which, I didn't stack the wood last year. I paid someone else to do it, who then complained when the wood pile he stacked fell on him. Terence's magic abilities haven't yet stretched to Jedi object-moving skills, and so if you want something doing, you do it yourself. The first year he'd delivered the wood, Monsieur Mayo had managed to wreck the gate as he manoeuvred his laden tractor through the narrow entrance. He'd also struggled to three-point turn the thing in such a way as to make it easier to offload. That was then, though, and three years down the line, not only was his body miraculously younger, 
but his eyesight and faculties were back to peak mid-season form, and he sped through the open gate before handbrake turning the thing in optimum position. Between us it took about 20 minutes to unload the tractor, and at the end I gripped a bottle of water like I'd just crawled across the Sahara while he looked out at me out of the corner of his eye. Then he looked at the discarded wood. It, uh, it won't be easy stacking this lot. Have you got help? He was genuinely concerned. No. No, I croaked. No help. He stroked his chin. Maybe I'll leave it a few days before the next delivery then, give you a little time. I leaned against the tractor and practically belched, that's a good idea, thanks, at him. Sweat was pouring from every orifice. All my padding was soaked, and my sun hat, shortly to be replaced by a hard hat, looked like it had been dropped in a puddle and was holding back a deluge of flop sweat. He chuckled, jumped into his tractor, and roared off again. I sank to my knees, and wondered if it wasn't too late to install gas central heating. I'm not saying I'm competitive in any way, but I felt a challenge had been thrown down here. Here was the old man getting younger by the day, a real-life Benjamin Button, and he was giving me a break by saying he wouldn't rush round with the second half of the delivery. There was pride at stake, and I set about pining the wood like a man possessed. Unfortunately, I was possessed with an unswerving illness and a body not up to the job. Two days later he was back and didn't bother hiding his surprise at everything, all of it, Three tons had been stacked. He tried to engage me in conversation, but I was, following nearly two whole days in bed, screaming for sweet death, in no mood for pleasantries, and besides, I was whacked off my tiny, tiny mind on the kind of painkillers that would floor a rhinoceros. I'm not entirely sure what got me through the next few hours. The old man left, either seriously impressed by my industrious nature or suspicious of my monosyllabic concentration, think Alec Guinness in Bridge on the River Kwai, as I immediately attacked the new delivery with a mouth-frothing verve that wiped the smirk off his face. When I finished, I stood back, admired my work, and sank to my knees again, a decision I immediately regretted as I couldn't get back up. Behind me I heard the gate bell ring, and I spluttered eventually back to an almost erect position and zigzagged like a marathon runner who's hit the wall towards the gate. It's probably Monsieur Mayo, I thought. Maybe he's forgotten something. It wasn't Monsieur Mayo at all. It was new arrivals for the B&B, and they looked at me very strangely indeed, as if they'd got the wrong place. Are you, um, are you Ian? The man asked nervously, obviously English. Ian Moore? Yes. I replied in a sort of death croak, and held out a red, raw hand, roughly bandaged. The man looked at my attire, my girdle and supports, the sweaty hat. He noticed the odd angle at which I stood, trying as I was to compensate for quite staggering pain. I was not the picture of health, nor stylishness, that I usually like to think I am. Not that that really matters in rural France. I mean, I keep up standards as much as possible, but the B&B offers a certain amount of anonymity, so I can get away with the odd lapse. I've read both your books, the man said, laughing. I I didn't expect you to be dressed like that. Busted. I stood there, swaying slightly and feeling like I might keel over at any minute. You know there are some people who can't even afford clothes, I said tartly. That'll show him. Thanks for listening. Please share it if you enjoy it. And if you want any information on comedy gigs, books or the B&B, please find my website at www.ianmore.info. Thanks.